You know, the thing I'm think I keep thinking about is though, so much ornate stuff is going to seem so great once this is over. Like just li- like literally just being oh, able to I go know. over to a friend's house and play a game or like go to go to a cafe. It's going to be like the world's worst camping trip, and when it, and then you get back and like and you're like, <laughs> oh, beds, sinks, life, hot water. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. I know. You know. I know. I'm already like, I'm going to go on an epic holiday when this is all over. Hello and welcome to today's episode of Don't Touch Your Face, Foreign Policy's daily podcast on coronavirus and the world. I'm Amy McKinnon. And I'm James Palmer. On today's episode, we're going to take a look at islands. Because in some ways, island nations or countries that have islands as part of them can use their geography to their advantage. Islands in the South Pacific, for example, have implemented strict measures such as banning travellers from countries with confirmed cases, requesting medical certificates and even making supply vessels wait for 14 days offshore. But the economic consequences of this could be devastating. Later on, we'll talk to Jonathan Katz, a journalist who spent four years in Haiti, where he covered the 2010 earthquake and the cholera outbreak which followed. But first this. The world is changing in ways that affect your life and your business. Do you have the intelligence you need? Now, FP is offering Insider. With a new FP Insider subscription, you will get all of FP's content plus exclusive access to data-driven intelligence, power maps that distill complex issues, in-depth special reports, and conference calls on the biggest stories and trends. Get global insight you can bank on. Subscribe to FP Insider today at foreignpolicy.com slash FP Insider. So when I was a little boy, we used to go on holiday on Seal Island, which is one of the Slate Islands in the uh, Hebrides. And, you know, it was these weird deserted places with very low mm-hmm. population. We used to go wandering through the, the center of the island where you would come across cottages that had been deserted centuries ago that had prayer books, other books from the late 18th century and had barely been oh, touched wow. since. And my father, mm-hmm. at least, used to claim that part of the reason had been plague outbreaks, uh, which, you know, continued until um, the bubonic plague outbreaks continued throughout the West well into the late 19th century, early 20th century. The world of epidemics was one that once haunted our ancestors at every turn, unlike mm-hmm. today, of course, where we barely think about it. Yeah. So they used the islands to cloister plague victims? No, no, I think it was more that the plague had broken out, that the idea was that the plague had broken out and people had fled, leaving these sort of Ah, deserted, um, you know, places behind. And they really were quite uncanny. Mm. I remember them well because they hadn't, you know, literally looked as though nobody had touched them for 200 years. Wow. And this time round, I don't know if you saw last at the end of last week, uh, the Scottish Hebridean Islands of Barra and Battersea issued a plea asking people not to come to the islands because they haven't yet had any coronavirus outbreaks there. But um, there's a petition going round asking for the airlines that fly to, and the and the ferry companies to only take people that live on the islands. So what's life like out on the islands in ordinary times? Well, I know actually know quite a lot about Barra because my dad, for a while, when I was in elementary school, was a cop. Uh, he was one of two policemen on the island of Barra, um, and he used to tell me that he would, in the mornings, he would drive clockwise around the island, and in the afternoons he would drive counterclockwise around the island. Thus covering all possible crime, clockwise and counterclockwise. 
<laughs> I did a school project on Barrow when I was in elementary school, and I, I remember there was like almost there was like twelve churches, I think, for a population of two thousand people, and I think almost as many pubs. But you know, they're yeah, they're small. I mean, Barrow's I think around two thousand people, and it's so far out west and so remote that you know, during the Reformation, when you know the entire country of Scotland changed its religion and converted to Protestantism. It got as far down the Western Isles as Barra, and then it just stopped. And so there are these little outposts of pre-Reformation Catholicism in Scotland, which just, you know, kind of weren't touched. Um, so, yeah, I mean, they're desperately trying to keep coronavirus out. And it's, you know, it's an interesting kind of case study, even in developed countries, because, you know, Scottish islands are part of the United Kingdom, part of the NHS healthcare system, a very well-developed, advanced system of healthcare but you know still these islands don't have any oxygen they don't have any ventilators they don't have any testing equipment yet the local mp tweeted out a picture that in the town hall they'd set up basically camp beds like the little kind of uncomfortable cots that you use in 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 camping you know just as an emergency if it does break out on the island and so that's a developed economy with a good healthcare system it just makes you wonder about island nations or countries that have islands as part of them that don't have that kind of developed healthcare system. I mean, there's such a long history of islanders being vulnerable to epidemics in general, too. You think of the history of colonialism, of the Spanish Mm. even arriving in the Canary Islands, which were one of the first places to be hit by that sort of wave of epidemic warfare that went with the Europeans and the, the native population was just decimated. And even today, if you go out to a lot of the smaller island nations, Um, they really depend on being able to fly people to bigger facilities for any kind of emergency case. Um, And, you know, we're getting to a point where a lot of that may start breaking down just because flights are starting to be grounded on such a scale. Yeah. I mean, have there been any kind of massive outbreaks in recent history on island nations or countries? Yeah, during World War II in particular, when a lot of islands were taken over by either the Japanese or the American military, then disease outbreaks tended to go along with that, along with obviously big changes in lifestyle, in the Japanese case, uh, forced starvation, all this kind of thing. So there's a traumatic cultural memory there in people's grandparents' or great-grandparents' time. Yeah. And what about in more recent history? Well, of course, in the Caribbean, you have uh, Haiti, which suffered a traumatic cholera outbreak just after the earthquake. And I talked to author and journalist Jonathan Katz over Skype. Katz is the author of The Big Truck That Went By, a book about the earthquake and its aftermath. So, Jonathan, you were in Haiti in 2010 when the country was hit first by a devastating earthquake and then by a cholera outbreak. What was the reaction to the outbreak like? People reacted in a lot of ways that I think people who were going through the coronavirus pandemic would uh, be able to relate to. There was terror. Um, There was confusion. Cholera was a disease that uh, had never been recorded in Haiti before, Um, certainly not in the lifetimes of of anybody who was alive or their parents or their grandparents. And so at first, people didn't know what it was. People were just getting extremely sick and dropping dead, and they didn't know where it came from. And people had no way to escape from it. You know, it's it's, it's not unlike what we're all going through right now with uh, COVID-19. Was there panic buying and and hoarding? Well, not exactly. I mean, Haiti is, on the whole, an extremely poor country. So people just don't have the resources to panic buy. Also, I mean, it's a different sort of disease. Cholera is spread through uh, 
water and food. I mean, it's a, a purely fecal oral, um, often literally disease. Um, one of the, the ripple effects of the cholera outbreak was, for instance, that um, fishermen had trouble selling their catch um, because people were worried about getting sick from, from what they ate. And the, the outbreak eventually traced back to a camp of UN peacekeepers, right? Yeah. How did the UN and the World Health Organization handle their share of responsibility? <laughs> not, not, a little bit of a layup quote yes, there, not, Jonathan. Go for it. Not very well. They didn't handle it very well. Yeah, so, you know, like I said, nobody knew where it came from at the beginning. And, and a lot of, um, you know, responders, you know, some of whom were there from the earthquake and some of them had been there before. Um, the UN peacekeeping mission had been in Haiti since 2004. So they had already been there for six years when the cholera epidemic and when the earthquake struck. They were responding to essentially political unrest and do, doing the bidding of, of their client states, especially the United States um, in Haitian politics. Um, there was a lot of assumptions at the beginning that this somehow must have been an, an outgrowth of the earthquake. Of course, it wasn't. Um, I was the... AP correspondent in Port-au-Prince at the time, there were rumors among the Haitian population that this had something to do with UN peacekeepers um, in the countryside. And so I went out to a base in rural Haiti, way outside the quake zone, on a tributary of, of the major river of the country, the Artibonite. And I basically caught them red-handed. I, I found you know horrendous sanitation conditions at the base. Um, I caught UN peacekeepers taking groundwater samples um, at a time that the UN was, uh, you know, saying to the Haitian press that there was no reason to even ask questions about their possible responsibility. And, you know, as I was there for a couple of hours, the Nepalese peacekeepers ended up digging up pipes and basically destroying evidence that could have been used to strengthen the case, find a, a smoking gun, as it were. I went back to the UN asking their comment, and of course they were supremely unhelpful, but I also went to the CDC. Uh, the CDC, you know, the United States is the, the closest power to Haiti. Um, they had played a leading role in trying to contain the outbreak. It was uh, a CDC lab where the pathogen was identified as cholera in the first place. And I thought, you know, this would be helpful to them. You know, I've I, here I've got you know, strong, anecdotal, I'm not an epidemiologist, just journalistic, you know, kind of ground level evidence. So I, I went to the CDC and I thought, you know, hey, this is information that you guys can use. What do you guys think? Do you think you're going to do an investigation? And they said that they weren't going to do one, which shocked me at the time. It wasn't until years later that, you know, I, I stayed on this case for, for, for years after it was, uh, this is about six, seven years later, um, that I got through a freedom of information act request, internal emails at CDC, where I found that CDC scientists were saying to each other before I even went to the base, that they were aware that there were rumors that the UN might be responsible for the epidemic. And not only were they aware, but that people on the president's National Security Council, President Obama's National Security Council, were aware of these rumors. And to, to my knowledge, the CDC never performed any kind of investigation in the area of the base. They went around uh, both the CDC and the WHO, in addition to obviously the UN, went around telling anybody who asked, 
you know, in the aftermath of my initial reporting, that this question of where cholera came from wasn't important, that it wasn't necessary to know that to fight the epidemic, all of which flies completely in the face of all best practices and, and you know, the CDC's own manuals on how to address a, a waterborne epidemic like cholera. <laughs> so not not really reassuring in terms of these institutions being front and center um, and handling the new coronavirus. No, not at all. And and I mean, this was something that I was on guard for when the coronavirus epidemic started. You know, I was aware that the CDC had this problematic history of letting politics interfere with its science. There are other examples as well, including with regarding Haiti, where the CDC notoriously and mistakenly um, identified Haitians as a potential source of the AIDS epidemic in, in the early 1980s, which caused just generations of damage and stigma and misery for people in Haiti. And I, I was aware that they had that background. I also knew that the CDC is the world's gold standard epidemiological organization, that if anybody was going to be able to do adequate testing and research and ultimately find a control and a cure, um, that it would come from Atlanta, that it would come from CDC. And so I was very keyed in at the beginning of, of this epidemic to find out, like, you know, how is the CDC going to respond? Um, were they going to prioritize politics or were they going to prioritize science? And it just looks to all appearances like they just let politics get in the way again, that they didn't stand up to the Trump administration. You know, Trump had obviously tried to gut their budget. I mean, Trump had gotten rid of the, you know, pandemic response unit at, at the National Security Council. Um, it seems extremely clear that the CDC screwed up testing, didn't take the steps that were needed to stop this from becoming a major epidemic in the United States. Um, and now we're all going to pay the cost. So, Jonathan, Haiti has no cases. The Dominican Republic, which shares an island with it, has a limited number of cases so far, but has shut everything down. How badly do you think the pandemic is going to hit these very poor countries? Well, first of all, let's say they don't have any confirmed cases. And I frankly wouldn't, I wouldn't expect Haiti to have any confirmed cases because the Haitian medical system, the Haitian healthcare system, you know, on a good day, they can't deal with really anything. I mean, trying to step up, you know, testing for an unknown or, a, you know, brand new disease, like forget about it. So if there are cases of COVID in Haiti, I don't think we would know about it. Um, there is possibly some reason to be hopeful that it will not hit the islands as hard as it is hitting, you know, other parts of the, the world. Um, you know, a year before the earthquake uh, was the H1N1 global pandemic. I was in Haiti at the time. I was <laughs> stocked up on N95 masks and Tamiflu, and I was just ready for that, that to come and, and ravage the country. And it just didn't arrive. I think that in that case, the lack of tourism in Haiti, sort of the minimal travel that Haitians do back and forth, probably provided some amount of protection. And so maybe, I mean, who knows, maybe, maybe that, that will help out. All of those caveats that said, if the disease arrives on Haitian shores, if it spreads rampantly in the population, it is an extremely densely populated country. You know, that's going to be a nightmare. And like ventilators, you know, there, I don't know how many ventilators are in Haiti. There aren't a whole lot of them. And God help you if you need one. 
That was Jonathan Katz speaking over Skype. And you know, Amy, I think one of the things we might see once the US has its act in order, he said optimistically, mm-hmm. is competition between the US and China in providing aid to these countries, to these small island nations. That was a big focus during the Cold War, you know, when every sort of Caribbean dictator would go to the USSR for an airport and then go to the US for a hospital and this kind of thing. Well, yeah, I mean, fingers crossed that there is foreign aid after all of this. I mean, the Trump administration has been has been rolling it back almost since the beginning of his tenure. And now there's the additional pressure on resources, both domestically as well. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it depends very much what and what future administration we have. But also, I can't see the US giving up its place in the world entirely, even under the pressure of coronavirus, if only because so much of the US's financial power ultimately depends on that hegemony. Yeah. And if you're interested in reading more about the future of foreign aid and the coronavirus pandemic, head over to our website where our colleagues Colin Lynch and Robbie Gramer have got an exclusive story about United Nations funding drive to try and raise more than 1.5 billion to prepare for outbreaks of the coronavirus in areas which are already suffering from some of the world's worst humanitarian crises. That's over at foreignpolicy.com. And listeners, don't forget that we want to hear from you. Tell us how the pandemic is affecting you wherever you are in the world. Send in your questions to don'ttouchyourface at foreignpolicy.com or send your questions as an audio recording using the Voice Record app on your phone. And don't forget to check out our coronavirus coverage over at foreignpolicy.com where we have some of the world's leading experts breaking down what's happening and what could come next. That's it for today's edition of Don't Touch Your Face. I'm Amy McKinnon. And I'm James Palmer. Our show is produced by Darcy Palder and Dan Haverty and is edited by Rob Sachs. Our web team includes Laurie Kelly and Kelly Kimball. The executive producer for news and podcasts at Foreign Policy is Dan Efron. Until next time, please remember to cover your coughs and sneezes. And don't touch your face. <laughs>